looking at verse 8 through verse 10 uh, as our text for today. And uh, this particular text is one that is uh, probably very familiar to a lot of people. It's one that's mentioned quite often. Um, one of those passages of Scripture that is more well-known than some of the others. And uh, I'm excited to dig into this as it really is the underlying uh, foundation of our salvation and all that Paul has been describing here in chapter 2. And uh, so this morning's message is titled, The Gift of Salvation. The Gift of Salvation. And so we're going to look at these three verses as we're continuing our uh, exposition through Ephesians. And I pray that uh, God's Word would minister to our hearts uh, according to His will this morning. Notice that Paul writes and says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Who of us here has ever been given a gift? We'd all, you know, raise our hands to that. We've all received a gift at some point in our life. It's uh, customary in our culture to receive gifts on special days like birthdays and Mother's Days and Father's Days and especially Christmas, right? That's the uh, big gift time of the year for many people. But in every case where a gift is given, what did we have to do with the gift coming to us? In the true nature of a gift, we had nothing to do with it, right? Now, customarily in our world, gifts operate a little differently. We may see something we like, and we might ask for that gift, and so we give a hint to somebody that, uh, well, I would like this for my birthday or this for Christmas. Just yesterday, our four-year-old David decided he wanted a four-wheeler for his birthday. And so I had to politely make clear to him, we're not putting you in a body cast. Uh, one, one arm cast is enough uh, that I don't think a four-wheeler would be fitting for uh, a four-year-old on his fifth birthday. But even if we request a gift, for us to receive that gift, there must be a giver. The giver must have a love for that person to consider giving them the gift. The giver must have the resources or money to purchase this gift. The giver must do the work of going to get the gift and then preparing it to be given to you. There is no work done by the receiver. It's all done by the giver. And this is the central point that Paul makes to the Ephesians about salvation that they have received from the Lord. He points out in this text that our salvation is indeed the gift of God. And since it is the gift of God, the Ephesians and us, we did not do anything to contribute to that gift. They did not ask for this gift, nor do we ask for this gift. In fact, in our dead sinful nature, we did not even know we needed such a thing. And even when it was presented to us before God truly drew us, we didn't want this gift. We didn't want this gift. See, all that Paul has said in verse 1 through 7 reveals the big picture of who they were and what they had come to be in Christ. You recall that this is one long Greek sentence and Essentially, you could look at it and say it's a Christian biography of their life, of who they were and who they are now in verse 1 through 7, how that God has eternally changed them beyond comprehension. You consider the contrast here that Paul has made between them before and after knowing Christ. They were dead in their sin, but now they're alive in Christ. They were following sin in the world and Satan, but now they're risen with Christ to new life. They were sons of disobedience, but now they are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. They were the children of wrath, but now they are recipients of God's love, mercy, grace, and kindness. This is what has transpired in them. And how is it and why is it that this has happened to them? It is because God's grace has poured upon them a gift beyond measure, the gift of salvation. And so with these few verses, Paul establishes the underlying truth of all that he just expressed 
and why and how this came to them and for what purpose. So what does Paul point out to us about the gift of salvation? Notice with me number one this morning in our notes, we see the process of salvation. The process of salvation. How is it that salvation is real to us and comes to us? And the first point here, and these are very fundamental truths that uh, we're looking at. Many of you know these, uh, but it's good for us to recall them. Notice firstly that we are saved by grace alone. We're saved by grace alone. You'll notice in verse 8 that Paul says, For by grace you have been saved. The whole passage here is considering the fact that they are saved in Christ and that this salvation has come to them by means of grace. Now, what does it mean to be saved for a moment? Let's park there and just look at this. We're looking at key terms. The word saved simply means to save or preserve from transcendent danger or destruction. It is to be delivered or rescued from Something. Now, we use this term commonly just in various ways. When someone was trapped in a house burning and and it's on fire and the fireman goes in there and pulls them out, what would you say? The fireman has rescued them or saved them from the burning home. When Peter walked on the water to go to Jesus and he began to sink, you remember what he cried out? Lord, save me. And what did Jesus do? He reached his hand down, lifted him up, and rescued him from drowning from a physical uh, uh, danger. Now concerning the Ephesians and all who are Christians, we have been saved, rescued, delivered. But what have we been rescued from? We have been rescued from what Paul described in verse 3 as the wrath of God. We have been rescued from the wrath of God, from the eternal death, the just punishment of our sins that we find ends up in the lake of fire. So they and we were headed for destruction, which is the wrath of God. The Christian in his past life was treading down this wide, broad road, just like the rest of the world. But now in Christ they have been Saved, rescued from that path. And here's what I want you to note. This salvation is settled and sealed for them. Notice that he says they were saved, past tense. Saved, past tense, means that this takes into the broad reality of salvation that God has secured it. Now, as you study scriptures, you will see there is a past tense, present tense, future tense that applies to salvation. We've been saved, we are being saved, and we shall be saved. There is justification, sanctification, glorification. But understand that, that all of our salvation is settled by the power of God. There's not any portion of it that can be undone or will fail to be completed. They are as saved as they ever will be because that is what Jesus came to do. Jesus said in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He did not come to seek and try to save the lost. He came to seek and save the lost. He accomplishes that which He sets out to do. And this salvation has come to us through grace, by grace. Now notice that Paul states this clearly here in chapter 2, that the sinner was not looking for salvation before Christ, and they were powerless to save themselves even when they knew they needed to be saved. And so Paul says they have been saved by grace. By grace. Now what is this grace that Paul speaks of? It's the Greek term charis, and it refers to a a beneficent disposition towards someone. This means that God has a benevolent disposition towards the Ephesians and to us. He has a disposition towards us that expresses favor and kindness towards us. Now, here's where you see the broader meaning of grace. Think of this in light of who they were and what they deserved. They were dead in sin. Could do nothing about it. They were worthy of eternal punishment. Yet, while they were in such a state, God set His favor upon them to deliver them from that condemnation. 
And that is why Paul inserts this statement in verse 5. When we were dead in sins, God made us alive. And then there's this parenthetical description of what's taken place. By grace you have been saved. By grace, by the, the, the disposition and favor of God expressed towards us even in that lost sinful state. Now, just as I described last week, that mercy is often as said to be not getting what you deserve, and that is true. Grace, on the other hand, is getting what you don't deserve. Because in our sinful state, we deserve nothing of God's kindness. We deserve nothing of God's favor. We deserve nothing of, of, of all that He has given towards us. The only thing that we are worthy of in our sinful state is the wrath of God. And so how has the grace of God been manifested and given towards us who believe? Well, there's, there's two aspects I want to point out briefly here. Firstly, is that God's grace is manifested chiefly in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. His death, His burial, His resurrection, and even His exaltation. Well, how do you see this as the work of grace? Consider the purpose for all that Christ did. Why did Christ come into the world? Why did Christ live perfectly? Why did he willfully and horrifically die when he didn't deserve to or have to? Why did he rise from the dead and ascend into heaven he did this on behalf of his people whom he came to save. He did not do this just randomly or without purpose or in hopes that maybe some sinners would come to him. He did this with intention and purpose. All that Christ is and all that he did was, on, was, was, was the only means by which we as sinful humans could be saved from our sins and be granted the glory of eternal life with him. And what is the root of this action? It is the grace of God, the undeserved and unearned favor of God towards us. We see Paul describe this in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 10. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. You understand this, Christian, that, that Christ alone, he lived the life that I could never live so that he could pay the penalty that I could never pay and conquer the enemy that I could never conquer. He did everything that was impossible to me that I had to have for salvation. He took care of all of it. That, friend, is grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor of God. But not only is that a work of grace, how else have His grace been manifested to them? Not only the redemptive work of Christ on the cross, but also through their regeneration and conversion. Grace completed the work of redemption, but grace also brought that work of redemption to them individually, changing them in their heart. This is about their conversion. Verse 5 expresses that, as we just noted. When they were dead in sin, being lifeless and powerless, God, by His grace, made them alive quickened them, gave them spiritual life. And so by the grace of God, the message of the gospel was providentially brought to their hearts. Where they were, in their location, in their culture, far from where Christ had died on the cross. Because it didn't matter how vile they were, where they were, or the fact that they weren't Jews, because many thought that salvation, oh, that's just the Jews... The gospel of Christ was brought to them because God ordained it to reach all nations. As Paul the Apostle writes in Titus 2.11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. All people of every ethnicity, every boundary, every language. It doesn't matter where they are, who they are. The gospel has been brought to them. And what we find is that as the gospel came to Ephesus... This Gentile, pagan, wicked, godless culture, their eyes were opened. 
Their hearts were changed by the gospel of Christ. And this all happened only because of the grace of God. Now this brings us to consider our own life. Think of who you were. Where you were. How the gospel message gripped you and saved you. You understand that your conversion to Christ is the work of grace. It is the work of grace. But notice, secondly, not only are we saved by grace alone, we are saved through faith alone. Through faith alone. Now, grace is one element in the process of our salvation here. But then he says in verse 8 also that we are saved through faith. Now, what exactly is faith? The Greek term here is the word pistis, and it refers to a state of believing on the basis of the reliability of the one trusted. It could also be translated as trust or confidence. You could easily say that saving faith is a confident trust in Christ alone because of His accomplished redemptive work. Now, understand that faith is not blindly trusting in something or someone without reasonable confidence. It is founded upon reliable truth. It's not blind. This is why Paul entered the synagogues, preaching Christ, reasoning with the Jews from the Scriptures. He says in Acts 17 and verse 2 through 3, Paul went in, and was his, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them with the, from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. You understand that faith is only as good as its foundation. And if it is not founded upon the inerrant authoritative word of God, it has no true foundation. It is not a saving faith. You understand there are millions of people in the world that claim to have faith in a variety of gods and religions. Does the jihadist Muslim have faith? Is he persuaded? If he's convinced in what he's doing when he detonates his bomb, killing himself and others, hoping to be blessed in the afterlife. Is he persuaded in that? Absolutely he is. Absolutely he is. He genuinely believes in his God and his mission. It doesn't matter how much faith they have in their religion. If it is indeed not true, which we know that their religion is not true because there's only one true God and Savior, then they have no true foundation or salvation in what they're doing. The only true foundation for true faith is the word of the living God. Because it is only through the word of the living God that we are imparted faith. This faith that saves us. Paul knew this as he taught in Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. And this is exactly what Paul just mentioned to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 3. You remember what he said? He said, they heard the gospel of their salvation and they believed the gospel of their salvation. So this general call of the gospel, understand, it extends to all mankind. Repent and believe the gospel. That is what we preach. We must preach that to the nations. If any man is to have salvation, he must repent and believe the gospel. This is what Christ preached as he began his ministry in Mark 1.15, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. When Paul and Silas were imprisoned in Philippi, and we know that there was a great earthquake that opened up the doors and the chains, and the jailer realized that, man, they must have got away, he's about to kill himself. Paul cries out and says, don't do yourself any harm, we're all here. The jailer comes into the Paul and he asks the question in Acts 16, 30 and 31, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What's Paul tell him? He tells him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. See, true faith is grounded in the one true Savior as testified in the Word of God. But I believe it is important for us to understand that this faith that is expressed in salvation, it is not just a mental agreement or acknowledgement of Jesus being Savior and Lord. Because there are many who will claim they are Christian and believe in Christ, yet their faith that they claim is only a mental acknowledgement of what the Bible says about Him and not a wholehearted trust in Jesus. Some claim faith in Christ simply because they are what we would call a cultural Christian. They've been raised 
in the church, or they have experienced some kind of a uh, unique something that draws them to Christianity, and so by that they claim their Christianity. Well, I was raised in church, and I've been in church all my life, so therefore, of course, I believe in Jesus. But listen to what happens in this account with, with Jesus and his ministry. In John 2, and verse 23 through 25, I find this fascinating. We read that when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You understand there were many under the umbrella of following Jesus that that they only followed him for reasons other than whole confidence in the person of Jesus, but rather in another way. So understand that true faith that saves the soul is a supernatural trust. It is an unfailing confidence. It is a faith that cannot be undone in a person's heart, but rather is a permanent trust. And this, friend, is the difference between those who can walk away from Christ and those who can't walk away. Those who have claimed Christ but then walk away never to return evidence themselves as not having had true saving faith. As John the Apostle wrote, he said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Now you look at John 6 and verse 67 through 69 for a moment. In this account, if you read this chapter, Jesus taught and contended with uh, those in his day, and he taught some hard sayings that uh, to them were hard to be understood. And after that, there's a lot of those that were disciples of Jesus that left and said, we're not following him anymore. But here's what we find with this account. Jesus says in John 6, 67, So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? I love Peter's answer. Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see Peter's reaction? Where else can we go? You're it. You are it, Jesus. There is no eternal life anywhere else. It's only you. So his faith in Christ was one that was convinced of who he was. It was not produced by him. See, those who cannot walk away have a faith that cannot be produced by their own fleshly nature. And this brings us to how is it that we have this saving faith and why salvation truly is to the glory of God alone. Notice with me number two this morning. We see the praise in our salvation. To who belongs praise? To who belongs the credit for all of salvation, every aspect of it? Well, notice with me two things here, that salvation, firstly, is a gift from God alone. That's the whole central point here. Salvation is a gift from God alone. Notice in verse 8, as he comes to the end of that verse, what does he say? He says, you're saved by grace, through faith you've been saved. He says, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So what exactly is not their own doing? Their salvation is not their own doing. But you'll find not even their faith to believe is originated in them. Now there is some debate as to some of these words here and how they reference. What is this and it referring to? What exactly is not of their own doing? What exactly is the gift of God? The construction of the language here has caused some to debate Uh, What Paul's referencing is grace the gift, is salvation the gift, is faith the gift, or is all of it the gift? Some would suppose that Paul's directly talking about faith as the gift, and there's good reason to believe that maybe he is. Firstly, because it immediately follows the flow of the sentence, and the aim of Paul writing this is to show that all of salvation is of grace, God's unearned favor. Many of the early church fathers held that this is referring to faith. Secondly, if Paul was to be saying that grace and salvation are the gift, some think it's repetitive since grace already, by its definition, is unearned and given. Thirdly, because there's other passages that point to faith being something we receive from the Lord. Listen to what Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing. 
with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. These believers had obtained a faith. The word obtained there means to obtain something as a portion, or it's also translated as receive. Another verse, Paul said in Philippians, in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted unto you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Often the focus of that verse is that, yes, it's about suffering, but He also includes our belief. We don't view suffering as a privilege, right? That's kind of the opposite of the way we view it. But Paul's saying that it's been granted of you to suffer for Christ. Just as the apostles rejoice that they're counted worthy to suffer for the Lord in Acts. But Paul also includes, it's also been granted to you to believe. It's something granted to them. Now the other interpretation is very likely also about what is this and it referring to. And it doesn't change anything as to Paul's theological point here. When you look at these words in the Greek, the pronoun this is in the neuter. I know that probably means nothing to you. You ever heard the saying, it's Greek to me? Well, we can all identify with that because it's kind of Greek to me too. <laughs> I have to rely on special tools to try to understand some of this stuff. But there is significance in the original language because there's a lot sometimes that is missed in translation. But the Greek pronoun this is in the neuter while none of the earlier words, grace, faith, or saved, are in the neuter. So there's not a direct reference as to what this is referencing. A neuter pronoun, though, can be used to describe the whole of the preceding phrase. So that means that this, or that as it, in some translations may be there, may refer to both grace, saved, and faith, making all of them the gift of God. And I think that's a, lot, that's a, that's a good conclusion as well. Well, here's one thing that is sure. This cannot refer to only grace and saved without referring to faith. It is not split into two portions as if God does one part and then I have another part in it. Salvation is not synergistic, it's monergistic. Now, synergism means that God does part and I do part. But monergism means that God does it all. And this is something we must understand and grasp. We should not think that God provides grace while we provide faith. That runs contrary to both the nature of grace and also the nature of man in his sinful state. So on the contrary, here's what we find. It is clear from other texts of Scripture that the faith given to believe, it is according to God's sovereign working in sinners as He convicts them. Listen to Acts 13.48. When the Gentiles heard this, heard the gospel... They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And notice this statement that Luke gives us. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It does not say as many as believed were appointed to eternal life, but as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That takes you right back to Ephesians 1 in the doctrine of election. And here's what we understand. All gifts, anything good that we have, including faith, come from he who is good. No man in his flesh can please God. And what is the central key to pleasing God? It is faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. James writes this in James 1, 17 and 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from where? Above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of, due to change. But notice this next verse in connection with this. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. That word brought us forth is the same language of born again. He caused us to be born again by the word of truth of his own will. And so as God, understand this, gifts the sinner faith through regeneration, it truly does become their faith that they use and exercise through regeneration. So in other words, it's not God believing in Christ through us. It is God granting us faith to believe in Christ wholeheartedly without turning back. So we find that no matter which interpretation you may take here, the reference to this or it, either way, the text makes plain to us that all of salvation is the gift of God by His grace. 
It is the gift. Paul said in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Paul makes this unmistakably clear simply by these words, qualifying it, not of your own doing. (laughs) You can't really get around that, right? Not of your own doing. So what does this truth reveal to us about our salvation? Not only do we see that salvation is a gift of God alone, salvation is to the glory of God alone. It is not to my praise, not to my glory. I boast nothing of my salvation. Fully understanding that all of salvation, even our faith to believe, is a gift from God. It leaves man zero room for boasting. Absolutely zero. If faith were to be of man's sinful will and power, he would have occasion to boast, for then it would be his work. But Paul plainly says here in verse 9 that it is not a result of what? Works. Grace is not a work. Salvation is not a work. Faith is not a work of man. Paul makes clear that works do nothing and have nothing to do with salvation. Now, this presents a major problem for much of modern Christianity. Why? Because in our our sinful nature, we naturally want to have part of everything. We want credit. We want it to be about us, right? There are multitudes who rest their salvation on their Christian raising, on their baptism, their church membership, their church attendance, their maybe an emotional experience they had, the fact they said the sinner's prayer at some point in their life, that they give tithes and offerings, that they're not as bad as the rest of certain people. You understand that people in this position, they are deceived and are twofold the child of hell. Because they don't realize that they're lost and they're convinced that they're saved. Now, here's what Jesus said to the most, one of the most religious men in his day, Nicodemus. He said in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Let me ask you this. What child gives birth to itself? doesn't the very term born again refers to born from above the word again means from above so you understand that the new work of god the new birth is a work of god not man and here's the plain truth of salvation if there was any work that we could contribute to our salvation it would not truly be a gift that eliminates the gift status if i have to work for something it's not a gift that's a wage The only work that we've worked is sin, and the wages of that is death. Paul said in Romans 4, 4 through 5, he said, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And as to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. You see, the faith that is given to us to believe is counted towards us as righteousness. We must see this. This is what the work of Christ does for us. It gives us what was impossible for us to have on our own. We had no work that could contribute in any fashion. All of our so-called good works in our dead sinful state are nothing but filthy rags, as Isaiah 64.6 tells us. Anything good and pleasing to the Father must be given to us from the Father. Because as Paul said, in my flesh dwells no good thing. John the Baptist said this to the Pharisees in John 3, 27. A person can receive even, cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from, the heaven, from heaven. So we must not uh, be swayed into thinking that somehow what I have that's good is of me. You understand that all that is good that is in me flows from the one who is good. God alone. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he asked them, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You see, any and all good in me, even my faith to believe on Christ, was first given from God alone. Now notice that Paul gives the reason God designed salvation this way. What's the reason that salvation is divine this way? Now look at this. It is so that no one may boast. 
so that no one may boast. <laughs> we, we, we must see how God deserves praise for our salvation, that He alone gets glory for all of this. It is Him who has saved us and not we ourselves. Now often we hear testimonies when people came to know Christ. They talk in their conversion sense. And one of the things that always sticks out to me where they're constantly saying the word I, 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 I. I did this or that. Now I understand that some don't fully grasp what they're saying. And they're probably tr- they're truly converted people. Some are. And how it comes across. But we ought to recognize is that all of salvation is of God. When I believed, which it is I believed, it's because God granted me faith to believe. And so thus I must say of my salvation, the Lord has saved me by His grace. It was God who called me and you out of our dead state unto life eternal. Paul makes this point unmistakably clear in 1 Corinthians 1. Go there with me if you would. I want you to see this text because this ties directly in to what Paul is saying in Ephesians. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 26 through verse 31. He says in this passage, For consider your calling, brothers. Understand this calling is that divine summons of God bringing sinners to himself. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that, you see that qualifier again, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And notice verse 30. And because of Him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, again, the qualifier, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in who? Boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. But you notice what he says. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus. And with this, he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We lay no claim to our salvation, but that God has graciously saved us. I love how Jonathan Edwards puts it. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Simple, but yet profound. There's no works at all that contribute to this. Now, there's going to be a lot that will disagree. I posted a status on Twitter last night about that uh, works are not a part of our salvation. They're not the root of it. They're the fruit of it. And I had a Roman Catholic guy decide he's going to evangelize me. Up and down, up and down, here we go. Trying to prove to me that Ephesians 2 is about us being saved by works. You understand that there are so many that are lost in that state, and we need to pray for them, that God would open their heart and open their eyes to see that salvation is a grace alone issue. But notice also that with this gift of salvation, are we to only expect rescue from hell and a home in heaven? See, there is more to our salvation than only going to heaven. It's also about our continued life in this world, which will be evidenced whether we truly are saved or not. Notice with me, number three this morning, we see the proof of our salvation. This brings us to verse 10. The proof of our salvation. Notice in verse number 10, if you would, of Ephesians 2. He says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. I want to point out two things about this. That firstly, we are... A new creation in Christ. That's what salvation makes us. We are a new creation. Verse 10 says we are His workmanship. Not our workmanship, but His workmanship. And this is all about the marvelous work of God. Planning and orchestrating and fulfilling redemption from eternity past to eternity future. The word workmanship refers to that which is made. And it's the Greek word from which we get 
poem or piece of liter, literary workmanship. This particular word was, was used to describe a finished product such as a, a, a work of art like painting or a sculpture. This word's only used one other time in the Bible. One other time in Romans 1.20. And, and it's translated, the things that have been made in reference to the creation of God. The work of creation that we see around us. So, so let us think about this truth. All around us in our world, what do we see? We see the artwork, the masterpiece of God for His glory. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Psalm 19.1 tells us. But what does this have to do with our salvation? As His workmanship, we have been created in Christ Jesus. We have been made into a new creation the moment we were saved. And as a new creation, the Christian you understand, is God's own artwork and masterpiece that he's worked on, that he's accomplished. Now, Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So you understand that our nature has been changed. And this is the contrast through this passage that, that we were a, a sinful mess, but God has made us a sanctified people in him. Having been created new in Christ Jesus, God has completed a work in us while continuing a work in us. So you understand that though we're not perfect until glorification, our glorification is as certain as it's already happened. And so also is continued God's, God's continued work in us. Philippians 1.6, listen to this. What does Paul say about them? He says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See the work that God has created in us. So, so how is it that we as a new creation in Christ, how is it that we manifest that? How is it that, that God works in us? But notice with me, secondly, that not only are we a new creation in Christ, we have a new conduct in Christ. Our entire life, and the manner in which we live is not the same. It's different. It's different. Now notice verse 10. Paul shows us why we're recreated in Christ Jesus. It is for good works. Now you see the change here. All our works before Christ, what were they? They were evil. They were wicked. They were unrighteous. But now in Christ we have good works. This is the proof of our salvation, friends. Of our faith. Because true faith given by God is a life-changing faith. Not just a faith that takes you to heaven and leaves you as you are in your sinful state. And this is the sad reality of our day that we must understand. Many think, that, think of salvation as only going to heaven but not really having a changed life here in this world. You understand that there are multitudes who live a continued life of sin while thinking they're going to heaven. Because they prayed the sinner's prayer at VBS when they were a kid. Or had some other kind of church experience. Now I'm not saying that God doesn't save in spite of those things. He does not save because of those things. People get saved in spite of some of the uh, misleading tactics and things that go on. But he's not saved because of those things. If you got saved through the sinner's prayer, it's not because of the sinner's prayer. It's because of faith that he wrought in your heart. Understand what I'm saying. The reality is, if your faith hasn't changed your life, you do not have a faith that takes you to heaven. Faith changes your life. It changes your life. Now listen to what James says. James says in James 2, 17 and 18, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. Now, works do not influence our faith. Faith influences our works. The problem is so many reverse that. If you have true faith, good works in a changed life will be evidence. We are saved by faith alone. But faith that saves is never alone. Good works are not the root of our salvation. But they are the fruit of our salvation. 
So we ask ourselves, have we been changed? Like the Bible describes, a saved person's life has been changed. But notice that Paul also connects this to God's working of these good works. He says of these good works, which God prepared beforehand. Well, what does Paul mean by this? This takes us again into the realm of God's sovereignty and what he ordains in our life. Paul pointed out in chapter 1 that our election before the foundation of the world leads, leads to God's people being holy before him in Christ. Holy. Now, in like manner, did you know that God has also marked out our path of good works before us in our Christian life? So, well, how can that be? Because he's God and he sovereignly works through his people. Now, Paul touches on this with the Philippians, saying, look at this, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but all much more in my absence, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work of his good pleasure. What do you see there? A command for them to work out their salvation, show it forth, while at the same time, God is the one at work in them. God's sovereignty and human responsibility are twin truths in the Christian life. If you neglect one for overemphasizing the other, you will miss the entire big picture. So let us note that God's sovereignty over our salvation and good works, it does not eliminate the responsibility and accountability of man. Because what does Paul say next? He says in verse number 10, God before prepared, prepared beforehand are these good works. Look at this. That we should walk in them. That we should walk in them. You understand that this is the duty of every believer. To walk in good works knowing that our calling and that whatever good works we do, it is God who has purposed them in us. All credit for any good that I do belongs to God, not me. Not you. Paul told Titus in Titus 3.8, This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now, don't misunderstand me. Good works do not keep you saved. That's not what I'm saying. They're evidence that you have been saved have been saved. And why is it that these good works are so important? Well, consider this with me. Just as God's material creation declares his glory, guess what you think, guess what God expects from his spiritual creation of us? His glory. His glory. One final text I'll take you to in Matthew 5, and I want you to see this. It ties to what Paul is saying here. Matthew 5 and verse 13 through 16, Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples, and he tells them, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your what? Good works. And as a result of them seeing your good works, what will they do? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, from beginning to end, salvation, our sanctification, in this life, on into eternity, it's all about the glory of God. Nothing of the glory of man. So we ask ourselves challenging questions in regards to this. What does the world see when it looks at our life? Think about you. Because we leave this Christian hub, don't we? We go out into the world. What does the world around us see in us? And how we live our life. What does our church see about how we live our life? Does our life remind anyone or point anyone to Jesus? Friend, as we consider how glorious this salvation is, we see firstly that it is the gift of God. 
All of it is. Grace, salvation, faith. And with this salvation, we as God's people have been created new to manifest God's glory through our changed life in good works. So I close with two questions this, eve- this morning. The first one's this. Are you truly saved? Are you truly saved? Have you been born again? Is Christ alone whom you trust and depend on as your salvation? If not, I call to you to do exactly what Scripture says. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You must believe on Him. And if you are saved, or at least claim to be, is your salvation evidenced in your life through good works? Have you truly been changed? And if you know that you've been changed by the marvelous grace of God, rejoice this morning and praise Him. Praise Him. For the work that he has done in you for all of our salvation is a gift that we've been given. Let us stand this morning and we'll have a closing song. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning and praise you. We can do nothing but praise you for what we have studied and read in this text. Our salvation is the gift that you have given. We can lay no claim to it. And help us, Father, that recognizing all glory belongs to you, that we would use our lives, devote ourselves to living unto Christ, manifesting your glory to the world around us that needs to see it. Lord, it's my prayer that through this message that you would work and minister to the hearts of your people. That if there is anyone lost here today, that you would draw them and convict them of their sinfulness. Awaken them, Father, to their lost state that you would bring them to faith, that they may believe. And help us, Father, as Christians, never to get tired or weary of hearing how glorious salvation is as a gift. It is all of you. Let us not be so accustomed to it that it's just another thing we hear as if it's the daily news or whatever happens. Lord, this is the message that has changed our eternity. May we rejoice and glorify you every day because of it. We pray these things in Jesus' name.